Hello, podcast friends. I'm Audrey Gelman, CEO and co-founder of The Wing. My personal idea of heaven is an evening on the couch with my cats Lyle, Dolly, and Ping watching the latest season of the Emmy Award-winning series, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I highly recommend you do the same. Cats and humans optional. Thanks to Amazon Prime Video for their support, and welcome to Episode 5 of No Man's Land. The work of Cuban-American artist Ana Mendieta, a feminist sculptor, painter, and filmmaker, is collected by all the major museums. The Guggenheim, the Met, the Tate. And that's how I should have learned about Ana Mendieta. I should have seen her work in an exhibition or read some big profile about her in The New Yorker. But I didn't. It was through her highly suspect, untimely end. The story of the murder of Anna Mendieta stands in for patriarchy in the art world. On Sunday, September 8, 1985, at the age of just 36, Anna Mendieta fell 34 floors to her death from the window of her Greenwich Village apartment, which she shared with Carl Andre, her husband of less than a year. It's a sensational story that's come to dominate her legacy. And it threatens to overshadow the incredible body of work she, as a true pioneer, was able to produce during her short life. That is also why it is a tragedy for all of us that she was not allowed to live to continue her work. And that's where we'll begin. Her story, her work... Because that's what's the most important thing about Anna Mendieta. I had never seen anything like it. Like, what was this? She was searching for something through her work. She was wanting people to connect with it. Because you see that work and you're like, yes, yes, yes. Welcome to No Man's Land, a podcast about women who were too bad for your textbooks. I'm your host, Alexis Ko, the in-house historian at The Wing, a network of work and community spaces for women. Every week, I'm going to introduce you to a woman who broke the rules, who history forgot about, ignored, or totally got wrong. In 1961, two years after Fidel Castro overthrew the Cuban government, 12-year-old Ana Mendieta and her sister, Raqueline, were airlifted out of their native Havana. Ana was my aunt, and she was also my godmother. She really was a family person. She really loved her family and cared about her family, probably also because she lost her family when she was, you know, so young. Raquel Mendieta, Raqueline's daughter, told me about how her mother and aunt were among 14,000 unaccompanied minors who fled communist Cuba. When they came to the United States, they arrived with a letter from their parents, asking that they never be separated. Through Operation Peter Pan, they were sent to to Miami, thinking that it would be just, you know, like a one year maybe at the tops. Her mother and brother wouldn't arrive for another six years. And her father, decades all spent in a political prison in Cuba. The Mendieta sisters ended up in Iowa, first in institutions, then foster homes, and finally, one of their own. When I think of Anna, you know, when I was younger, 
It's mostly not how I see her, but how I heard her. When Anna was in art school, she still lived with her sister, Raqueline, which means Raquel grew up seeing her almost every day. She was very loud, so <laughs> she she had a very low voice. There's like that joke, you know, I'm not yelling, I'm Cuban. Um, she's like the epitome of that. So <laughs> she always, you know, was like her booming voice. But I would hear her in the kitchen talking, you know, with my mother and my grandmother and my uncle. And they'd be talking in Spanish, of course, and very quickly as they're cooking or making coffee or something. So it's really the memories are like sounds and smells. Raquel is now a documentary filmmaker, and Anna's influence is apparent in her work. Having her as an art teacher, I feel like it probably changed my life because I remember coming home from school and I collected my drawings and I put them all in the top drawer of my dresser. And I told my mother that I was putting them there because Anna had said, as an artist, you have to take care of your work and make sure that it's in a clean, neat space. And so I went around and collected all my things and put them in this drawer. And, you know, the fact that I still remember this, you know, it, it obviously made an impression on me. Anna was smaller than the rest of her family. Not quite five feet tall, slender, with big brown eyes, full lips, long, wavy brown hair. She was beautiful, to be sure, but that's not why you can't stop looking at her. She was incredibly expressive and yet calm in her art, which wasn't confined to a single medium. But at the same time, there's this intense stillness to her. And that was always the case. From the very beginning, the way she used her body in her work was fearless and provocative. Which is why, before we move on, a warning. You're going to hear about an art project Anna made in 1973, when she was a student at the University of Iowa, in response to the brutal rape and murder of another student, Sarah Ann Otten. She told her classmates to stop by her apartment at 7 p.m. They didn't know what to expect. Like, the door was open, and they kind of walked in into this scene. Kristen Clifford, a feminist performance artist and professor at the New School, is describing that piece called Rape Scene. She's bent over a table with blood smeared on her buttocks and legs and left there. Kristen is looking at a photograph of the hour Anna spent completely still, lit from below, so you can't make out her face. The table she's bent over is at a skewed angle. The floor is littered in broken plates. Her hands are tied together above her head. She's wearing a plaid shirt. Her underwear is around her ankles. Otherwise, she's completely naked. That picture of a woman's body used and left for dead felt very close to my experience of rape. Felt close to the experience that I had of being completely objectified and used and thrown away. When asked about it years later, Anna said, I think all my work has been like that. A personal response to a situation. I can't see being theoretical about an issue like that. And she uses her body as both subject and object to denounce sexual assault and violence against women. I felt understood. Like there's this kind of ecstasy or joy through the pain of all of it. 
I looked at her work and I, I loved her and I felt like she loved me. She considered herself a sculptor, which is also interesting because, you know, people look at Anna's work and they think, oh, she's a photographer. Oh, she's a filmmaker. You know, she's a performance artist. But really, she defined herself as a sculptor, which makes sense because, you know, she was sculpting with the earth. Anna is best known for Silhouetta series, works in which she merged her body with nature. And sometimes it was literal. She'd lie naked on the ground with no separation between her body and the earth. Another time, she climbed into a pre-Columbian tomb and covered herself in white flowers. So, I mean, she was like really like a sculptor of like prehistoric times or something, you know? (laughs) Other times, it was figurative. She'd create silhouettes of her body in the ground by digging into the soil or using rocks and twigs and blood or whatever natural materials she could find in her own shape. She uses her body to form shapes in grass and sand and dirt. She would fill it with gunpowder and light it on fire. So there's videos of the silhouette burning and then the ash aftermath. Although it was ephemeral, Anna would take pictures and videos of the process and the final conception so that people like Kristen are still studying her work. And today, Anna is regarded as a key figure in both the body and earth art movements. It's connecting like the impermanence of human form with the natural elements. Which is how Anna seemed to feel about Havana. She had to flee her homeland, but by connecting with the earth, she could try and find it. She was separated from where she felt she belonged. And so this work was like a way to, you know, as she said, to reestablish the bonds. You know, it's like a way of reconnecting with the earth was, you know, the same as reconnecting with Cuba. Hi. I went up to New Paltz to see Carolee Schneeman. La Nina is her cat. Carolee is a famous visual and kinetic artist who is friends with Anna Mendieta. There's a small section of the homage to Anna there, two Mm -hmm. panels of 16. We were renegades, marginalized in the culture. It was a time when the culture said to young women artists, you can do anything you want, but it won't matter. Art galleries, art curators, and art historians were wildly sexist. They ignored women artists whenever they could. And when women's work received attention, they simply minimized them or dismissed them. The art world operated on a strict hierarchy. And as far as they saw it, everyone had a place. Men were artists. Women were their models, their muses, maybe their assistants. But their bodies were to be assessed and interpreted by the male gaze, to be used for their art as objects. And so using the body was such a conflicted terrain because it was supposed to be to arouse men. And of course, as soon as you took your underwear off, that must be because it's going to give guys a hard on. And then it didn't, and they were very angry about that. Like, well, wait a minute, this is confusing us. And our uh, symbolic territory is being disrupted. Like Anna, Carolee used her body as her primary medium, liberating the female form, emphasizing a woman's agency as creator and creation, which was considered pretty radical at the time. So Anna's work is steadfast and, and is bringing in the Cuban traditions of sacred nature 
and sacred worship of female power. But she was like my, my sister in a sisterhood that was barely formulated because there was no feminist theory around us. The critical formalist feminist theorists hated this work. They said, this isn't doing any good for us. You're just playing into male fantasies here. And that was really painful and awful. In 1978, Anna joined Artist-in-Residence, Inc., AIR Gallery, which was the first gallery for women in the United States. It was an artist-run model, meaning that Anna had to put in work, as any cooperative requires, but that allowed her unprecedented freedom. Joan Snitzer is an artist and one of the original members of the gallery, and remembers the moment she first encountered Anna's work. I had never seen anything like it. I mean, I'm still a student. I'm not that sophisticated. And I see this woman digging holes in the ground and placing her body in it and being naked. And to me, it was, like, really strange. Like, what was this? Joan is describing the Silhouetta series, which she saw as nothing short of revolutionary, which is what AIR must have felt like to Anna. There were no male gatekeepers or insistence that some man she had studied under or taken as a lover was responsible for any part of her work. Their goal was simple. These women wanted everything that was available to men in the art world. Success to her was just recognition of the issues that she was portraying in the work. To say, yes, I agree, and I see your pain, and I see your femininity and I see your loneliness, you know, and your isolation. That's what she seemed to be seeking. Anna was being dismissed and reduced by male critics, but at AIR, she was surrounded by women artists who respected and supported her work, enough to give her a solo show in 1979. Everybody's very intrigued with her otherness. She is still a novelty, though, Um, and I think Anna is aware that she is a novelty. It's hard to find information about that show because, while it marked a major professional milestone, in retrospect, it's now overshadowed by a man, which is representative of how too many people see her. It's impossible to separate the legacy of Anna Mendieta from Carl Andre, the man who allegedly killed her. Carl came to that solo show. He was a towering, aloof, well-known minimalist artist to her petite, opinionated, wide-ranging, up-and-comer self. They were drawn to each other. There was something there, even though at the time she was seeing someone else. She dated them both for a while. And then it was just Carl until the end. And now, a word from our presenting sponsor, SAP, where we'll hear from a series of women who inspire us with their fearlessness and creativity. Hi, I'm Alicia Tillman, Chief Marketing Officer at SAP where we provide companies the technology they need to run at their best and help the world become a better place.
This time we'll hear from The Wing's very own co-founder and COO, Lauren Kasson. She's been breaking rules ever since the start of The Wing, even in early pitch meetings when a potential investor made a comment about her earrings. That I shouldn't wear those into meetings with men because I'll never be able to, you know, close a deal because they'll just be looking at my earrings and my fashion and judging that versus listening to the to the pitch and what we're trying to do here. And in that moment, I remember first my heart sunk a little because I really wanted this person to support what I was doing. This was a pivotal moment for Lauren. I decided I'm not going to listen to this. And I walked away and I just said, this person just doesn't get it. And I'm going to keep doing what we're doing and keep being me. And, And it worked out. Lauren realized that for women in business, it can be better to break from old corporate norms instead of trying to follow them. In that moment, I realized that conformity isn't, you know, what pushes those rooms to be more ex- inclusive or open. It's, it's really about changing the old guard and, and almost fashioning new ways for us as women to step through the future together. SAP is committed to making the world run better and advancing true gender equality. Please visit sap.com forward slash women forward to learn more. After Ana Mendieta's AIR exhibition, her work was supported and in demand, not just by women, but by the art world at large. She received a Guggenheim Fellowship and a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship. She was invited to exhibit all over the world. I feel like the last three years of her life, like her work was really taking off in like this really exciting new direction. You know, before she left for the Prix de Rome, she actually had a show at PS1 where she showed these um, floor pieces is what she called them. And they basically were kind of like these, they were um, like, they were basically like silhouettes that were transportable, you know, so they're the same type of shapes that she was making in the earth, in the mud, but they were actually meant to endure. She was starting to play around with permanence, planning works for the future that weren't ephemeral. And in 1983, she received the Rome Prize, which allowed her to live in Italy, where she discovered a love of studio-based sculpting and a love of Italy. She was empowered by that year of working and living as a recognized artist in Italy and coming back and being the wife of a famous artist was an issue. She split her time between Rome and New York, always returning to Carl, though their relationship was rocky. As Anna's career was ascending, Carl saw the price of his work drop. They drank and fought. She suspected he was having an affair in Berlin. When the man you love that is the artist you love betrays your devotion, it betrays everything, not just your relationship with the fact that you are an artist, the fact that you shared everything, the fact that you imagined a future. No matter whose side their friends took in the aftermath, everyone agrees there was a good amount of tension in their relationship, which is why people were surprised when, in 1985, Anna, age 36, and Carl, age 52, were married in a private ceremony in Rome. After the wedding, Anna returned to New York, and in early September, she had plans to spend the day with her family. We were supposed to go visit Anna in the city, and so we had made... um, 
like a date with her and we were going to go in and go to her apartment on 6th Avenue um, and just hang out a bit um, and then, you know, go out to dinner and go home. So we went into the city, all of us, and knocked on her door and, nothing, you know, she wasn't there, which was really weird. Um, my mother ended up writing her this note on this piece of, like, garbage that she found on the street. It was like a piece of cardboard and wrote her a note, like, what happened to you? We were supposed to meet. We're all here, which is a lot of us because there was five kids. So <laughs> my mom and my dad and five of us, you know, knocking on her door in this tiny little corridor. And, you know, she didn't, she didn't come. So we left, and my mom thought it was really weird because that was very unlike Anna. Like, she always kept her appointments. She was punctual. Something, it was just not normal. That wasn't the only thing on Anna's calendar. She and Carl had planned on hosting a dinner party on September 8th, 1985. That event, Carl canceled. He called each person to tell them something had come up, but he never called their family to cancel the outing. So we didn't know at the time that she had already died. You know, um, it wasn't until the next morning, like really early in the morning, that my mother got the, the phone call. And we were waiting for them to come home, and the phone rang. And my sister and I were there, and we answered the phone, and someone said, when is the funeral service for Anna? And we both looked at each other like, what? Like, what? What are they talking to? You know, and I knew, like in that moment, I knew. Shortly after that, Raquel's parents figured out what happened, but it wasn't from Carl. He didn't call anyone, actually. He didn't call... He didn't call the family, but he didn't call it. I mean, he actually spoke to one of Anna's really close friends. She called looking for Anna, and he just said, she's not here. But he didn't tell her what had happened, which is really weird. (laughs) He never called to tell them. He never called again. As the Mendietas were trying to figure out what happened from New Jersey, Kara Lee who was a quick subway ride from Anna's apartment, would be woken up to the news. Painters came in. They had their own keys, and I was half asleep on top of the pyramid, and these guys came in, and they're holding a New York Post in their hands, and they say, they say, they say, oh, they say, look, uh, Carl Andre's wife died. Said, Wait a minute, what? What? Here's what we'd later learn about September 8th, 1985. Anna and Carl had been drinking, and they'd been fighting. The doorman of the building next door said he heard what sounded like a woman saying, no, 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 just moments before Anna, wearing only blue underwear, fell 34 floors. Her body hit the roof of a deli. Carl called 911. According to a 1988 New York Times article, he told the dispatcher in a detached voice, My wife is an artist, and I'm an artist, and we had a quarrel about the fact that I was more exposed to the public than she was. And she went to the bedroom, and I went after her, and she went out the window. Carl said Anna jumped out the window. An impossible idea to those who knew her best. For one thing, according to Carol Lee, it was one of those perplexing windows you see in old Manhattan buildings. If Anna made the decision to jump out of it, she would have had to maneuver herself with some difficulty. 
It would have required her to stand on something to contort her body, which isn't how Carl described it to the 911 dispatcher. She's petite. Very easy to push her out a window. Carl was much bigger than her. He could have easily picked her up. And not only that. She didn't like to climb on anything at all. And I, being tall, when I went over, Anna would say, Oh, good, you're just in time. Can you change a light bulb for me? She was afraid of heights, something Raquel learned a few months before Anna died. When we went to Spain together um, in 1985, I was with my grandmother, and um, we were in the south of Spain, and um, we traveled to this little town that was winding up, you know, through the hills. And when we got to this site, there's like this famous site there where you're supposed to like look down and you see these amazing like rock cliffs. And I refused to go to the edge. I was like, no, I'm, I'm good. I'll just stand back here and look from afar. I don't need to like get up close. And she was right there next to me and said, oh, why won't you go look? I said, no, no, I'm okay. She's like, are you afraid of heights? I said, yeah. She's like, oh, me too. <laughs> so there was no question in my mind, knowing them both, that she would never go out a window. She would never, her career was really flourishing. She was so full of uh, vibrant energy, but that would also be the kind of self-determined energy that could drive a partner, a a very self-important man, crazy. She was volatile. She scratched. She howled. Her death divided the art world. So the, the psycho drama was he couldn't have done it and she must have asked for it whatever it was. Carl was charged with murder. During the trial, his lawyer managed to discredit not only the eyewitness, the doorman who heard her say no, 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 but every other allegation that came Carl's way. And there was no jury, only a judge. Justice Alvin Schlesinger of the State Supreme Court of Manhattan, who concluded the defendant's guilt was not proven beyond a reasonable doubt. According to a New York Times article, Carl stood silently in blue overalls. When he left the courtroom, he said, justice was served. Despite the trial, Carl continues to work. And despite his acquittal, there are plenty of people who think he got away with murder. And in 1995, the Gorilla Girls, an anonymous group of feminist artists, plastered the city in posters featuring Carl next to O.J. Simpson, asking, what do these men have in common? I think it's unfortunate that she has become a symbol of patriarchy in the art world, but I also think that it is a fact that she has become a symbol of patriarchy in the art world because there is this very dramatic story that includes murder. I don't think anybody wants to use her in this way, but I think that it's kind of inevitable. Decades later, Kristen Clifford and the feminist No Wave Performance Task Force protest Carl's continued success. And that continued success is driven by the art establishment. And men like Philippe Verne, who was the director of Die Beacon when the upstate New York gallery launched a retrospective of Carl's work. He told The New Yorker, We are a museum, not a court of law, and he's one of the most important artists of our time. Carl gets a retrospective because he got to live. He survived their relationship, and Anna didn't, which means that her work stops at the age of 36. But his continues. He's now in his 80s. Anna Mendieta is dead. 
Anna Mandietta didn't get a chance to become a mature artist. What kind of work would she have made? What kind of work would she be making right now? Everyone I talked to spoke about the injustice and sexism Anna faced in life and death, but also spoke about how she's more than just a symbol. To let her death overshadow what was a prolific career is to fail her. She would want it to be about the work. I mean, for sure. She wouldn't want all the focus to be on the biography or about her life. She would want it to be about the work and that the work was good. You know, I mean, really, that's that's all that mattered to her. I mean, nobody makes that much work and spends their whole life creating, you know, if that's not their motive, you know? For her, it was like a personal quest, you know, like to to find... She was searching for something through her work. You know, she wouldn't want all the focus being on anything else. That I'm sure of. No Man's Land is a co-production of The Wing and Pineapple Street Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alexis Ko. Our executive producers are Audrey Gelman, Deidre Dyer, and Jenna Weiss-Berman. No Man's Land is produced by Anne Hepperman and edited by Diane Hodson. Cameron Mesero composed the music and her band Glasser wrote the theme with additional music from the band Lola Tone. Thanks to the estate of Anna Mendieta, Raquel Mendieta, Kristen Clifford, Joan Snitzer, and Carolee Schneeman. We had help from Cynthia Pemental, Leela Day, Maddie Sprung-Kaiser, Dina Kleiner, Melanie Altarescu, Laya Garcia, and Diva Perdue. If you're interested in a women's-focused workspace and place to hang in New York, L.A., D.C., San Francisco, Chicago, or London, consider The Wing. Apply for membership at the-wing.com. Next week, in the last episode of the season, we're talking about the history of women's social clubs, something you think you know, but I promise you have no idea. No idea.